The promise of God's kingdom is the humble blood of his holy son. That's the promise. It's rooted in the blood of his son. It all comes down to whether you believe Jesus died or not. And what that matters to you. Have you ever considered just how big of a promise we're talking about here? I mean, when I think about all the promises that God has, and they're all wrapped up in Jesus, my response so often is to look at my, my tiny little life, just 42 years, and, you know, maybe I look at this one thing that happens, and I try to understand it, why did that happen? <laughs> or I see God clearly working here, maybe this thing over here I'm not so sure about. We love ascribing meaning to the things that happen. But man, if, if you're like me and you do that, you know that after a while, that's kind of a small way to make sense of everything. By what you see in your own lifetime. Um, but God's promise of his kingdom and its King Jesus goes back so much farther than any of us. In fact, we've, we've seen the effects of that and how the Bible plays out. We've, we've seen it in the book of Acts. You know, that's couple thousand years old, but it goes back much farther, much farther. Um, so if, if you've been with us as we've looked at the book of Acts and we've seen God's kingdom going out to the ends of the earth, um, what I'm going to do for you this morning is I'm going to show you how 500 years before Jesus and his disciples, God gave us an exact picture of what we could expect. Um, so this morning, if you've been coming here throughout that series, this is an opportunity for you to simply check our work as a preaching team. You know, what we're, what we're hitting on, we're not making this up. Not only is it true in that text, but it was true earlier. And I'm, so I'll do that by way of the Old Testament. And, and if this is your first week, or if you're relatively new here, and you're not as familiar with what we've been walking through in the book of Acts, well, my hope is that um, I'm going to set you up to walk with us through the rest of the book of Acts after Easter. So it's a little bit of a pause to check your work and to look ahead. So let me start with some background on where we are in history at the time of today's specific text, which is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, which I think sums up the book of Acts. Um, so first, who is Zechariah? Who is Zechariah? Well, um, he was a prophet to the nation of Israel after their exile. Um, why had they been exiled? Well, through the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, Israel had proven time and time again that they didn't really love God. And God kept saying, I'm going to hand you over to your enemies. And then he did that. God allowed them to split and be conquered, and they were taken into exile about 70 years before we see these writings in Zechariah. But when that exile was still fresh, so if you can imagine, you've just been split up as a nation and everything seems crazy. At that time, 70 years prior to Zechariah, there was another prophet named Jeremiah, and he encouraged Israel 
And in chapter 25, verse 11 of the book of Jeremiah, he said that after 70 years, this exile is going to end. So you've been cast off, but God hasn't forgotten you. Your exile will end. And it did. And in chapter 29, verse 10 of of Jeremiah, he also promised God is going to give Israel a new temple. And in chapter 30, they're going to get restored. They're going to have a new kingdom. So here we are now at the time of Zechariah, 500s BC. The exile has ended, but where's the new kingdom? Where's the new temple? They're just kind of deposited in the corner of whatever empire is in power. I don't get it, God. So the big question is this, will God keep his promise? Because life is still hard. So to Zechariah writes, and in this he gives Israel hope. And here's how he's done it so far in the book of Zechariah up to chapter 9. In a large portion of that text, he's given them hope through a series of visions. And those visions are going to give context to the three verses we're going to read today. In fact, his first vision in chapter 1 says that God's Messiah, this salvation is coming, but doesn't say when. So what Zechariah is saying is, he's going to come, don't lose heart. And in the same way, I think that we're in a different time, that same encouragement is true of us. He is coming. Don't lose heart. So now let me read Zechariah chapter 9, and I'll just read verse 9. And you look in there for a really clear picture of Jesus. Okay? So there's just going to be one verse for each point in your outline. There will be drawing from elsewhere in in, uh, Zechariah and even elsewhere in the Bible. Here and there. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is what God says to his nation in exile that is now out of exile, but looking for the promises. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's quite an interesting king. The first thing we learn here is that our humble, righteous, saving king comes in peace. That's the kind of king they should look for. So right there in verse 9, Zechariah gives us a pretty clear picture. Now, I mean, the first two attributes, they were probably pretty easy for Israel to get on board with. Righteous, (laughs) having salvation. I mean... Historically speaking, especially when it comes to the idea of being rescued, Israel was pretty aware of their lowly state and their need to be saved, at least from a worldly perspective. So this new king sounds like a pretty good deal. So what kind of kings was Israel used to up to this point? Well, to put it bluntly, prior to their exile, they had split into two nations And they had a bunch of terrible kings. And they had some mixed bag kings. 
And then they had a couple of decent kings who died anyway and were usually replaced by mixed bag kings or terrible kings. That just kept happening. So how much of an improvement is a righteous saving king? That's a huge improvement, especially if you consider the context of one of Zechariah's earlier visions in chapter 2, 10 and 11. Part of that is this. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Sounds the same. For behold, I will come and dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Could the coming king be God himself? I mean, that sounds pretty righteous in having salvation to me. But then we have this third attribute in Zechariah 9, 9 that seems to maybe change things. Humble? Riding on a donkey? Does that sound like God? Well, let me explain the donkey. This is Palm Sunday after all. Um, th- think, about a, um, think about a powerful conquering king. Right? Think about somebody you'd want to, you know, get America out of their mess or any nation that's having trouble. Um, especially in these times, uh, a powerful conquering king, you'd probably think of somebody fully armored, where, uh, riding something like a war horse, going into battle. That was the imagery that you would understand. Um, but historically speaking, when it was times of peace, Kings wouldn't do that. They wouldn't ride horses. They would ride donkeys. Because donkeys were a symbol of peace. In fact, the most famous biblical example that would come to, mind of, come to the mind of an Israelite here would have been in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verse 38, when Jesus' ancestor, a man named Solomon, son of David, was made Israel's king. Because King David had already won peace for Israel, so in came Solomon on a donkey. He wasn't on a war horse because he didn't have to be. You get that? That's when you would ride a donkey. No battle. Now, do you see at least some connections to Jesus in, in, in Zechariah 9.9? I mean, when you think about the Jesus you see in the book of, uh, book of Luke... Jesus claimed to be righteous. He, he, he even claimed to be one with God in places like Luke chapter 10, verse 22, when he called God my father. So Jesus came promising salvation too. So righteous, having salvation. I mean, even Isaiah said this in his writings. And in fact, John the Baptist, um, who proclaimed the beginning of Jesus' ministry, quoted Isaiah in the book of Luke chapter 3, verse 6, when he said that through Jesus, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then Jesus, of course, rode a donkey in Luke 19. So he's righteous and he's having salvation, but he's coming in peace. And you can call this a bit of a reach, but I don't think so. I think the reason... Jesus came in on a donkey is that from an eternal from an eternal perspective the battle that Jesus was in was as good as over because the battle he was in wasn't political salvation he wasn't trying to free Jerusalem from Rome he was bringing peace with God 
And so real peace had arrived with the coming of Jesus. That's what makes this coming king so astonishing. I mean, Jesus wasn't bringing ordinary righteousness. He wasn't just a good person. He was bringing the righteousness of God himself. And he wasn't bringing ordinary salvation, like what we think of, like political salvation. He was bringing salvation that would actually restore people to God. It just hit different. And so the humility we see here in Zechariah, in light of what we know about Jesus, isn't ordinary humility either. This isn't just about a king riding in on a donkey. This is God himself bringing peace to undeserving peoples who had all the prophecies and yet didn't even recognize him. They killed him. And he knew that. And he wrote in anyway. So I hope you see Jesus in Zechariah 9.9. question is, how does this apply to us? Well, I think the verse applies to us in the same way it applies to Israel at the start of verse 9. Our application is to rejoice. That's our king. These attributes. I mean, just consider salvation. Don't be offended by a king who isn't primarily concerned with your political salvation. And don't be offended by a king whose whose humility, even under a corrupt government, caused him to die for his enemies, that's Israel, rather than line them up on a wall like they deserved. That's not what Jesus did when he came. Rather, rejoice in that king, on that donkey. Follow him, just like we've seen his disciples literally copy him in the book of Acts so far. So I'm going to give you a current event you can rejoice in. Let's consider coronavirus for a minute. We haven't talked about that in a few weeks. Okay, you may notice that there are a couple opinions out there about coronavirus. Right? Maybe a few. So... I'm going to just entertain a few of them for a minute, just just for fun, you know. Say this, all this that's happening is some biological attack. Let's go there for a minute. You may believe that or be tempted to believe that. My goal here isn't to argue whether you're right or wrong, because you could be wrong and you could be right. You could be. But say they find out who did it, and that person is standing right here. Here, they catch him. I'm not saying we don't pursue justice. What I'm asking you is, what do you want to do to that person? What do you want to do for all that has been done? Do you want them to be saved? Would you like for them to repent? Or do you just want them to die? I'm not saying don't pursue justice. What I'm saying is underneath all of these theories are people with souls. Would you like them to repent and believe in God or not? Would you allow them that privilege? 
What would you do to them? Or let's talk about another group of people that I think are actually pretty close to the first party. You know, some, some of you have, have quite a few opinions on the government's restrictions on your life. Personally, here in this church, anybody like wearing these? Right? Now, I'm actually not going to mess around with whether that's right or not. I'm sure some of you have some opinions on that. I don't think that's the point. Because guess what? Believe it or not, governments throughout history have been known from time to time to sin. Does that happen? Yeah, that happens. So maybe it is happening. You know what? When Jesus was doing his thing, the government was trying to mess with him. That happened all the time. But you know what? God allowed that. That wasn't Jesus' primary concern. So here's my question for you. Have you already killed our government in your heart? Here's what I mean by that. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Who in authority have you called a fool? I'm not saying whether they're right or not. But do you want them to be saved? Would you like them to know about Jesus? Or do you just want to get rid of them? So that you can get back to whatever it was you're doing. Here's my point. When you see the righteous saving power of our king, when you look at Jesus and what he was under, and then you behold his humility and what he's saving us to, salvation hits differently. We stop being distracted by secondary issues, even if they're screaming loudly. And what consumes us is to humbly pursue the freedom found only in salvation from God and to want that for other people. That's what drives us ultimately. We still do pursue justice, but we look at the people who are enemies and the people who are making life difficult and we ultimately want them to turn to Jesus. I'm mostly preaching to myself here. You guys are just along for the ride. That's our king. That's the king that we serve. And what's more is that he's not just saving us to a small kingdom. His goal isn't just, I want to get my little kingdom back. He wants something so much bigger. In fact, as we're going to see in verse 10, this peace and salvation that he's coming for, it's not just for Israel. It's not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. So now let's look at chapter 9, verse 10, and you tell me if this doesn't sound like the book of Acts. Let me read it. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
So the second thing we learn is that our king reigns in power and peace is for the nations. Remember those few decent kings of Israel I mentioned earlier? They died, right? Their kingship ended. Remember Solomon on a donkey and Israel's in time of peace? That ended too. Um, Downfall happened and then exile. But look at the imagery in verse 10. This king is going to end all wars. This king is going to bring a peace that nobody has been able to accomplish. And so by his power, he's going to bring peace. And I think the end of this verse uses very interesting words to the ends of the earth. Tell me if that doesn't sound like the book of Acts. So what does it say? It's saying that peace is coming, not only to Israel, but to anyone who is under this king. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? I mean, to draw context from one of Zechariah's previous visions, again from the one in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, God says this about the day the new kingdom comes. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And there's a huge connection to this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is the verse we keep going back to. When Jesus told his disciples they would spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And we saw that in Acts chapter 10 and 11 two weeks ago when the gospel made it all the way to the Gentiles and then really started going outwards. That's what this king is bringing in humility. You get it? It's not this like nice, kind attitude that impacts a few people. This is actually going to be what brings peace to the world. Is this humble king. So if you've ever been tempted to think of Jesus as a hippie, it kind of gives us a little balance. (laughs) So how does this apply to us? Rejoice in the shadows as you await true kingdom peace. How peaceful does the world look right now? Not really. I mean, we do see shadows of it. Um, A huge shadow, one of the biggest movements in Christianity right now is happening in China. Most of us probably aren't even aware of that. It's so wrapped up in our little things that we're doing. But one of the biggest movements is happening in China right now. Do you know that they're actually sending missionaries here? Do you ever think that would happen? Um, now, we see, we see good stuff like that. But I want to draw your attention to the, to the waiting process that we're in. Until the real thing when Jesus returns. Because you can look at verse 10 here. And it's describing this time of ultimate peace. And you look around and you say, well, that's not here yet. Well, yeah, it isn't. But it is coming. So what do you do as you're waiting when, when race riots and, and deep political divides make, make real peace seem completely impossible? What do you do? Um, well, for one thing, um, celebrate movements toward peace when you see them. And again, I'll bring up coronavirus. This would be more of a happy application, though. Because here's the thing. You know, remember how a lot of people have different opinions? Yeah, like, that's like some of you guys. (laughs) That's here. There are different opinions here. I'm an elder. We have different opinions. 
And we're working it all out. And that's my point. When we work together and when we prefer one another, when you don't like wearing this, but you're like, you know what? I'll do it. That's a sign of peace to come. It's amazing that people with so little in common, apart from Jesus, could be unified. That is something really worth celebrating. And um, even more broadly, let's think about culture. When you see Chinese Christians, for example, you know, or if you were to go to an African church, you know, it might look a little different than, than our church. And not just like how people look, but the types of songs that they sing, how long the service is, <laughs> the food that they have afterwards if they're having some sort of a meal. Um, when you see that, and we've seen this all throughout, um, especially Acts chapter 10 and 11, when you see those different cultures coming together under Jesus, rejoice. That's a good thing. That's a shadow of what's to come. When people from every nation worship the same God now, we can look ahead and rejoice because one day, people from every nation will worship God fully. We see it in part now. We'll see it fully. So friends, we have a righteous, saving, humble king who comes in peace. And he also reigns over the nations with that same peace, spreading that message, not just to us, or not just to Israel, but to the whole world. But just in case we even think for a moment that it's our our savvy or it's our preaching, or it's our missions team, or it's our budget that allows us to win people, we need to take one more look at why God is the one in whom we place all of our hope. The king is the one who's winning this battle. So let's to do that, let's read the last verse, verse 11. It says this, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So the third thing we see here is to rely on the blood of God's promise. So here's what we see in, the, in this verse. That this coming king and the salvation he brought with him, which is available to all nations, is all because of God's kingdom, which was sealed with blood. God's blood. So what's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. And that's fine if they both keep up their end of a deal. Have you ever been in a deal and one party doesn't do anything? Have you ever had a group project in college? (laughs) Israel couldn't do it. That's the point of the Old Testament. They couldn't keep up their covenant with God. God kept saying, worship me and things will go well. And they wouldn't. So they landed in exile. But that's why King Jesus came. He lived righteously and died humbly. That's point one. He's righteous, having salvation, riding on a donkey. And he's making sure by his power that anyone could get in the kingdom and the earth would be redeemed. That's point two. He did all the work Israel couldn't. 
And so what we need to do is we need to remember that covenant. We need to remember that God's the one doing everything. He's coming up with the idea and he's executing that idea. And the best thing we can do is just simply follow him. That's actually why I use the word promise a couple times here, even though the text says covenant. It's because if two parties make a covenant and one falls through, it's just kind of over. You just kind of break the covenant. But if one does all the work, it actually functions like a promise. God has been doing that all along. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. In fact, if you were here two weeks ago when I preached through Acts chapter 10 and 11, that's what happened when the gospel went to the Gentiles. God the Father offered his kingdom by sending his son Jesus to die, and then he sends God the Spirit to take God's kingdom through his people to all nations. It's all God's fault. And I mean that in a good way. And here's where I'm going with this. If you believe Jesus' blood has cleansed sins, you can believe every one of God's promises. It all hinges on Jesus. This king, this humble, saving, righteous king, that's the anchor to which all of God's promises come true. That's what you need to turn to. So how does this apply? Bask, live in that covenant. It's a promise from God. As I mentioned in my opening, don't just do this by looking at your lifetime of God doing this or that and what you think that means. I'm not saying don't do that, but don't stop there. Instead, look through your whole Bible and see at, and just see all that God has done, just like we've done this morning. Go back to Zechariah and look for Jesus. Um, one, one great example of this that just meant a lot to me when I was a young Christian is uh, in Genesis 15. It's much, much earlier. It's all back near the beginning. Um, there's a guy named Abraham, Father Abraham. And um, God makes a promise to him to make his descendants like the stars. He says, I'm going, to make your, I'm going to make a nation through you. But then Abraham does something. So God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. So you'd think, okay, God reaches out his hand. Abraham shakes it. Good, deal. But then Abraham falls asleep in Genesis 15. And God passes through and he completes both halves of the covenant. Go back and read it. It's crazy. I I remember reading that and I didn't understand it, so I just kind of kept going. That's just like Jesus. His disciples literally fell asleep and he just went ahead and obeyed. Or his disciples ran away and he's like, fine. And he just does it. And did both Abraham and Jesus get many descendants? Yeah. We're some of them. There's more to come. That's the point. Is God throughout history is keeping the whole covenant. And you can just look for that and look for that in the Bible. 
So actually, that's one of your small group questions is to think about other ways. So if others come to mind, feel free to share those. So let's get a little practical, though, as we wrap up. Um, have you ever like looked at the world and kind of not liked how it's going? Um, when you don't like how the world is going, rejoice in the shadows. Yeah, but don't just kind of look around. Don't just say like, well, praise God for um, Grace Fellowship or praise God for the mission team. Like, that's good. But don't just stop there. Look backwards at how God is keeping his promise. Keep doing that and then use that to look forward in hope. So if the future looks bleak, you need to kind of understand the past a little better. You need to refresh your vision. Look backwards at God keeping his promise time and time again and people failing time and time again and yet God is patient. And then use that to look forward in hope because Jesus has one last promise. He will come back. That situation in in Zechariah 9.10 where there's going to be actual peace on earth when war is over when people from every nation are praising God and it's all finished, that's going to happen. We have the same confusing situation as Israel. We don't know when it's going to happen. But there is going to be just one kingdom and just one king. All by the power of our righteous, saving, humble king of peace. So we can look forward, and that's my hope for us, we can look forward and we can look around just like Israel did and we can say to ourselves, life is hard and we don't know when our king will come again, but he will. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for your promises. Lord, if I were to bank everything on on my ability to obey, there would be good reason to mourn. There would be good reason for our church to just close and never meet again. But Lord, your promises all hinge on Christ. Christ who was promised so long before. Christ who came. Christ who looked just like they said he would. And a saving righteous king he was. And yet he was humble. And he died so that many could live. So Lord, as we look around and life is hard. Or as we look ahead at our deaths. Would you help us to remember our purpose is to point people to Jesus. And would you help us to do that? Would you help us to do that as we... Think about how to deal with our neighbors who interpret things a bit differently than we do. Would you help us to do it even in our marriages? As spouse disagrees with spouse or as, or as it's hard parenting or living on campus. Uh, Lord, would you help us to look at your face and to remember your promises? Would you help that, help, help that to cause us to look ahead and rejoice? Amen.